Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Recently, the Solomon Quality Ski Time film tour rolled through Crested Butte, and along with it were Solomon athletes Connor Ryan and Drew Peterson. And while we've previously had Connor on the Blister podcast for an incredible episode, we will include links to that conversation in the show notes to this conversation, and Drew Peterson was part of a remarkable panel session at our last Blister Summit called Pro Skiers on the Mental Game, and we'll include links to the video of that and links to the podcast of that discussion, which I would beg all of you to check out. But this time around, we were able to get me and Connor and Drew together in our Blister headquarters in Elevation Hotel. And as you are about to hear, the result was another fantastic conversation between these fellow athletes and teammates and good friends. So please enjoy this conversation with two remarkable people, and we will include a link to the Solomon Quality Ski Time film tour in the show notes to this episode. There are still a few stops left on the tour, and so check it out, and if you have the opportunity to go, well, I think this conversation will convince you why you should. Well, Connor and Drew... Welcome to Blister Headquarters. Connor, your first time in HQ. Drew, you were here, but it was during the Blister Summit, and I think this room just basically looked like an explosion. Yeah, it was mayhem. <laughs> Seems about right. Well, great to have you guys in town, and, and even more fun to have you just like in this room. I saw you guys last night, but there was a few other people there, so we didn't quite get to like really you know lock in you want to talk about last night? Yeah, we threw a proper party here in Crested Butte. Had a stop at the Quality Ski Time film tour uh, in partnership with Solomon. Um, that sounded like really sponsory, but... It's just facts. Yeah, they're, they're who helped make this film tour happen. And yeah. we're traveling around North America all fall and it's super fun. Last night being in Crested Butte was uh, one of the shows that I was looking forward to the most because I absolutely love skiing here and I love the community as a result too. Hmm. Yeah, it's awesome to see a packed house, packed uh, packed with house. so many kids and the yeah. intergenerational and it's just awesome the way that this, this community is kind of rooted in the mountain. Yeah. Connor, maybe you and I talked about this when we recorded a, was that last, when did we do our- It was last spring, yeah. right before, uh, right before I went to Five Point Film Festival. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Maybe you told this story then, but it, I always love asking like- the last time you were in Crested Butte? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to come here back in the Super Pass days. Um, and I would sleep in the back of my Prius down in uh, down in Gunnison at the King Supers. And so I've had my, my fair share of days up here. And yeah, it's just a really magical place. And it's awesome to have a reason to, to come back like this and, and, you know, get to connect uh, a little more with the community than you get to in the King Supers parking lot. <laughs> Yeah. For for the listeners who have never seen you in person, how tall are you, Connor? Yeah, I'm six five. So <laughs> how, how sleeping in the back of the Prius go? <laughs> well, it was great because if you could sandwich your gear bag 
uh, between the center console and the the armrest for the front seats. There's pretty good like neck support, so I could get my head in between the driver's seat and the passenger seat, and then my legs fully extended all the way down to the door, or you know, to the back hatch. Flat and feet on the, yeah, on the on the hatch. Exactly, and that's you know, I fit right in there. It's about six five. You know, that's how that how I measured it out. And yeah, it's a cozy life. But uh, I slept in there so much uh, that the condensation started freezing. Uh, on my windows and it, and it caused all my window tint to peel, uh, which was a bit of a bummer because you need that when you're when you're camping in a in a grocery store gotcha. parking lot. Wow, Mister Positivity over here, you were trying to be like, oh, elicit this reaction of like, oh, it was really hard and crazy. He's like, it was cozy and perfect. No, that's proper ski bumming. Yeah, it's proper ski bumming. Yeah, I think like I don't know now that I get to do like cool expeditions and shit like that. I'm like. When I'm at base camp, like somewhere at 11,000 feet or something, I'd rather sleep in a Prius. Like, <laughs> it, it really wasn't that bad of a deal looking back. Just pining for the old days. Yeah, yeah, run the heater for a good 20 minutes before you fall asleep. Cozy. When did you guys actually blow into town? It was like, I mean, you guys are on a tour. Like, you aren't messing around right now. Can we tell the stories, the behind the scenes stories? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> When you texted me yesterday, that was kind of late afternoon. I don't know if you had been in town or if that was like you were just getting in. Oh, yeah. We just got into okay. town. Okay. Yesterday, we skied at a basin in the morning and then we drove down here and we shipped stuff here to the Blister office um, for the show last night. And uh, we weren't actually supposed to pick it up, but we had to pick it up. Ah. And uh, yeah. I guess, I guess let's rewind the first story yeah. of yesterday's road trip here um, was we've got a bunch of raffle prizes for the tour, which is awesome. But yesterday we were driving on the interstate out of Summit and Connor's like, oh, whoops. And one of the Yeti coolers fell out of the back of the truck on the interstate going like 70 miles an hour. <laughs> it was just one of those things too, like right before we left Drew's house, I met I met his parents for the first time and that was rad and we're loading up the truck and I put that box in the bed of the truck and Drew's mom's like, that won't blow out, right? And I was like, oh no, nothing ever blows out of here. Like, it's good to go. And it was about seven, six minutes later. <laughs> we're on the interstate and we look back and there's just there's just something brown, you know, spiraling out of vision <laughs> through the rearview mirror. Just a few more details. The bed of a pickup yeah. We're talking open air, not like we didn't have a topper on it with a window open in the back. What was our situation? No, it's well, it's got like the kind of the cage around it. Like I have the racks with the rooftop tent. And so yeah, there's I don't know, like it looks safer than it was apparently. <laughs> yeah, and we had too much stuff to like put the tonneau cover over it. So yeah, that was interesting, but then Ran out on the interstate, grabbed it. It was in a box, so that was helpful. So it like really didn't scuff the cooler that much. But then, of course, at the show last night when we gave it away, I had to tell that story. Yeah. And then, fittingly, I was like, you know, if these like minor scuffs on it like upset you too much, we'll give it to someone else. Yeah, that was and great. And then I don't know this like eight year old kid yeah. won it, won it. <laughs> and I handed it to him off the stage. I'm like, hey, it's heavy. And then, like, immediately he, like, dropped it yeah. and, like, fell. 
And I was like, oh, look at that. Like plausible deniability. Those scuffs didn't come from me now. That's right. That's right. It all worked out. I mean, I do, I almost feel like every Yeti cooler should first be thrown off the back of a pickup, like before anybody gets it. I mean, first of all, think about like high, high streetwear fashion. People are paying top dollar if you, if the manufacturer will scuff up the sneakers first, right? Yeah. It's like ripping the knees of your jeans. Yeah. Actually, this could be a whole new line. Like, coolers first thrown off the back of pickup trucks by professional skiers. <laughs> that's so that got to be can, a serious upcharge. Yeah. You, yeah, that's... you can have that idea for free. That's... I'm just I'm just really happy we're talking about this cuz I'm going to send this podcast to the Yeti marketing manager <laughs> and she's going to get a real kick out of it. Yeah. No, I think it's this is a whole new this is a whole new like angle here is yeah. Yeti coolers first scuffed up by the pros just like just like high streetwear fashion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you don't want to like pull out that like perfectly unblemished right, cooler. Like exactly. everybody knows you're faking it at that That's point. Right. You don't go outside. That's so right. you get one that we've already beat up. You look legit. Yeah. I love it. I and love then the, and then the second oh, Yeah, oh right. I'm sorry we're not done. The second oh, yeah. truck bed story yesterday was then when we got to Crested Butte, we came to the blister office to pick up the packages that we had shipped here. And uh we learned a lesson from the first time. So then we shoved everything in the back and we have a ski bag with like 12 display skis or something crazy in it, which is super heavy. Um, but then I climbed in the back of the truck to hold everything down to go from Mount Crested Butte back down to town and got some real funny looks from the drivers behind me, but nothing fell out a second time. Yeah, I was, I was kind of amazed that that's what it took, but... <laughs> I'm just glad Drew's willing to put his body on the line. (laughs) Wait, so you actually sent me a video of that. When this podcast drops, can we put, are we allowed? Yeah, okay, that that you folks will see, yeah. 100%. (laughs) Okay. I think it's kind of funny too with the film tour. I feel like uh, like outward facing, it looks like, you know, professional Solomon does everything, but then like that's the like real behind the scenes and like the on, on the ground of like, how it all comes together. Yeah. It's good to keep these things in mind. Can we talk a little bit about some of the films? I, I want to talk about one in particular, but I'll let you guys sort of roll this out. Um, how many stops, pop quiz, how many stops have you done? How many more are there? Okay, honestly, I don't know how many stops we've done. Yeah. <laughs> kind of intentionally because I'm like not, I don't want to like create that like, you know, like, 10 down, eight to go Uh mentality in my brain because it's like a pretty long season of being on the road. So we have 18 stops in total. I think we have like five or six left. Um, Yeah, but it's been an awesome fall on the road. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of the idea behind starting this tour was we wanted to create the classic ski movie premiere for more than just the classic feature length action movie. So we incorporate short films like festival style flicks mm-hmm. all the way up to the 50 project and then uh, the blank collective movie, which we get back to that full length ski action, ski porn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I, I like what it means to us as, as a team at Solomon to be able to do these kind of these film projects. And it, it's pretty sweet to see the investment in every kind of storytelling. Um, 
and to watch the way that different crowds and different communities engage with, you know, particular films. And so I think it's a refreshing take on how to do this as someone who grew up going to, you know, Warren Miller films and has done the MSPs and the TGRs and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, if we're not them, then how do we find our Mm -hmm. own take on it? And it's a pretty, it's a pretty sweet format. Yeah, it's fun because like the filmmaking world and the ski world has like kind of shifted more to that short format and storytelling being the emphasis and like the ski movie premiere world hadn't really caught up. It was like kind of left to film festivals. And so, yeah, we created this thing. Mm-hmm. And like this year we have seven different films and, you know, like Connor's saying, like every single film has its own like unique identity and style, which is really fun to get to show that much variety. Mm-hmm. And how did you get looped in being the like, what are we calling you, tour director? Uh, I don't have a job title. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. You could call me like producer, manager. Um, one of the guys at Solomon was joking. I could be like the executive director uh-huh. just because he wanted to put like ED next to my name. <laughs> wow. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, family audience. <laughs> that, that's a more, that's you, the, the younger audience that you were concerned about last night with some of the jokes you were telling, that one they would not understand as opposed to the ones you were telling last night. So, just to keep you, just to keep you clear here on where your lines are, if you're trying to keep it PG. Well, you know, got to see where the line is by yeah. towing it. <laughs> Do either of you have chops on the edit side of things like where are you at are you like nah we're front of the camera people what's your front of the camera versus back of the camera i just was talking to cody about this actually yesterday we were talking about tv shows and stuff and it just finally dawned on me like you've been doing all these 50 project episodes like have you do you like watch tv different now you know and he's like yeah absolutely and um i don't know i just don't know the answers to figure it all ask like front of the scenes behind the scenes yeah i mean i think for both of us i think it's pretty fair to say uh there's a lot of both um for me was with spirit of the peaks uh that one i co-directed and co-wrote and so yeah it was it was a large process of both sides of it and, and for me it was my first film so <laughs> both sides of it were new at the same time yeah um but I was really amazed uh, just with the whole editing process. And we had my, my co-director directs a bunch of amazing films, Tim Cresson. Uh, but this was his first ski film. And so for me, the, the editing side really came in on the skiing, where eventually we had to just set aside a week for me to stay at Tim's house with him and his baby and just be like, this is what, this is the part of the turn that you want to have in frame. And like, (laughs) there's just a lot of that stuff if you don't know. And there's no way to indoctrinate him into that sort of like, you know, a hero's dose of mushrooms and putting him in a dark room with only ski films. And so (laughs) I had to, I had to go over to Seattle and and help him out with that. And it's a pretty sweet process to, to kind of get steeped in because then you feel I think a lot more connected to what the possibilities are mm-hmm. uh, as a filmmaker. And it gave me a lot more respect for this year in the Tracing Influence film uh, that Cody and I have a segment in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was made by Mike Douglas. And so to get to watch Mike Douglas's mm-hmm. process of making a film and then trust him to edit your skiing, um, 
you know, I think he knows what skiing looks like for the yeah. most part. <laughs> yeah. Something about being the godfather of free skiing or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was pretty interesting to go from like, I did it all and now I'm going to trust it all to someone else. <clears throat> but I'm really happy with how how it turned out and it, it gives me a lot more respect for a lot of folks in the ski industry to actually realize like uh you know i don't think anybody in the nfl you know has to go over to espn after they finish a game and <laughs> cut together the yeah. top 10 for sports center or anything so yeah yeah well put yeah how about you drew yeah um same uh getting involved in the whole process for sure um i have less of the technical qualifications to you know make a film 100 on my own but um you know especially like for both me and connor like the films and the stories we tell are often so personal and we're so invested in them that we have to see it through from beginning to end because that's the level of like emotional commitment that we have to it so like the film that i put out last year um, ups and downs, which tells my personal mental health journey. Like, of course, with that being my story, I was involved in the whole thing. And, you know, as far as like production goes, like for that one, I was a producer, well, the producer, and then also on the ground, I was directing when we were shooting all of the skiing. So that's definitely pretty involved. Mm -hmm. And that's like a whole nother like Rubik's cube to like have put into your brain. So like for that one, that was 100% human powered ski touring. And then, so like, I'm also managing like avalanche and snow safety, and then also hmm. directing the filmer, where to be, what shots we're looking for, you know, coming up with the plan for our ski tour. And then in the back of my head, I'm also like doing the math to make sure that this is going to fit into the budget and, you know, paying those guys and, uh, yeah. And then I also have to ski in front of the camera. That's like the last piece of that. The last, the last part. Oh, right. Yeah. The, but you know, skiing's the easy part as they say in Aspen extreme. So <laughs> it all works out there. Um, yeah. And then like the, the film that I'm working on right now, which mm. actually isn't in the film tour this year, because it's a, it's kind of a longer process and a longer timeline. That one, again, I'm involved in like 100% of the way through and like just as a tease, that one is a skiing and running film. Um, so this spring I skied all the peaks around the Leadville 100 course. And then in August I ran the race. And so we're combining skiing and running using the story arc of the race to weave together those stories and then connect it to, you know, like really a broader story about my connection to the mountains and the fulfillment and identity that I find in that. And then weaving in a couple specific mental health threads that I wasn't able to fit as specifically and as explicitly into ups and downs. So that film I'm like 100% involved in and it's super fun to just like commit and engross to that, engross myself in that whole process. Hmm. Hmm. I want to circle back to just one of the films we saw last night tracing influence she mentioned i think you guys have already spoken well about you're like well how do we do our own thing that differentiates a bit from some of the other film screenings and i i do think it's really cool that there was a, it was a packed house last night and if we pulled the audience i'm sure like what was your favorite film i'm sure the answer would be different a bunch right and that's cool tracing influence for me kind of won the evening and i think 
very much for a couple reasons. Well, one, I know Connor and I know Cody, and that's that was a really powerful film sort of talking about their relationship. There's a terrific one with with Emma and John Clay. And I knew those two when they were little kids. And so I think for personal reasons, it was fascinating for me to learn a bit more about their own relationship. But and here's where I really want to go. You know, we recently lost Hillary Nelson. And there was a lot of appropriate talk after that. Um, we hear this after someone important to any community passes, but, you know, tell the people you love that you love them. And I've been thinking a lot about this, rather the like in memoriam, let's start doing those now. And that tracing influence was exactly that. And I want to see that become more of a common genre, you know? I don't really think we have that very much. And I guess if I'm sounding too opaque or something, it was talking with a number of different people and and sort of asking them to identify a significant person in their life. And they talk about it. Then those people are brought together and you kind of get to hear both sides of the relationship. And I just think that is something as human beings in our short time on this earth, we need to be doing that more and more. And I like the public versions of them too, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I'm all for that. I think, yeah, we got to, especially in this sport, and, and Drew and I were actually talking about this this morning. Like, you know, I think there's a lot of ways uh, you get so accustomed to what you do that, like, for me, I'll watch football on the weekend and be like, dang, those guys are hardcore. Mm -hmm. But, like, you know, and they say, leave it all out on the field, but like, no one actually gets left on the field mm -hmm. at the end of the day in those sports. And that's unfortunately not the case in our sport. And, mm -hmm. I think for that reason, we got to we gotta give people their flowers while they're here to receive them. And that was what I found like after Hillary passed was just how much time I was spending telling other people a lot of the things I wish I could have told her because you just think like she and she was the kind of person who had that legacy of mentorship throughout the industry where you kind of almost could take it for granted where you knew like the time comes and I need to ask, Hillary or Hillary and Jim about some stuff like they're always going to be there. They're always going to have the answer. And that was how my connection with them started was them just stoking us up. And, you know, uh, I do a lot of skiing with my partner. And so to talk to the two of them felt so insightful. Um, yeah. And, and so I think that was a great step that we made with this film is like th this sport is really predicated on relationship. Um, I liked what Kristen Norman, who runs the uh, the She Jumps scholarship, which is like a sister scholarship to the Icon Pass Natives Outdoors scholarship that I do. Um, she referred in our video to how skiing is generational. Um, and I think that's a great way to put it as someone who's tackling the barriers to access a lot. I'm like, ooh, generational is a great way to describe it without, you know, I think sometimes there's a lot of weight on words like privilege and things like that, where it's like, but having a mentor is a key part, I think, of every pro skier that I know of their origin story. And yeah, this is one of the first times there's been a film that really explores how consistent of a theme that hmm. is throughout the industry. 
Um, and I think that's, I don't know, I think the human power of our sport in that way and the community power of our sport um, is something that films are celebrating a lot more and audiences are really feeling, I think, empowered to connect with in a new way. Hmm. I guess first off, I want to share a note on, on Hillary's passing is um, the last conversation that I had with Hillary um, was this winter and, and before that, um, I had crossed paths with her in a few different contexts and, and met in a few different contexts and like lobbied with Protect Our Winners, actually with Connor too. And um, throughout that process, uh, we didn't have like a deep interaction. But then last winter, I reached out to her and asked her for some advice. And she came through in spades. And I got to have this conversation with her where I told her, the inspiration that she had held for me and how much respect and how much I'd looked up to her for so long. And when she passed away, I was really glad hmm. that I had said that and that I had, you know, passed that on to her. And I like that you frame this conversation that way, because for me, like I've had, um, I've had a few, uh, brushes with my own mortality. Um, at a young age and it really changed things for me and so like for me it's really important to not leave things unsaid and there's also an essay by Steve Casimiro of Adventure Journal um, that I think I think the headline of it is thoughts on honoring the dead and the living and he wrote that after uh, JP Andreas and Liz Daly had mm -hmm. passed away um, in two respective avalanches in South America um, a few, man, years ago and immediately, uh, when Hillary passed, um, and it was confirmed that, um, she was dead. I, I went back and read that essay and, you know, that's, that's something that I think that we can all strive to. And what sucks is that I haven't had that moment that I like got to have with Hillary mm -hmm. with all the friends that I've lost. And yeah, it was definitely a big learning moment. Um, you know, to bring it back to the film, though, um, to bring it back to tracing influence, personally, what I love most about that film and why I think that it resonates so well with audiences is because these aren't just like pro skier stories. Right. They're human totally. stories. Right. And I think that that's what really makes it resonate with an audience. And I think that's why it's really cool that Douglas and his team at Switchback Entertainment created a feature length film that weaves together all of these personal stories into the greater story of the inspirations that we have in life. And it's told through the lens of skiing, but I really believe that because those individual anecdotes and the stories within are human, that the film itself really connects on a human level. And, you know, no surprise that Mike Douglas came through with that level of storytelling. Hmm. Yeah, that's something that I think like, for me, I think about that a lot in filmmaking uh, because I'm often making a film that I want to reach more than skiers. Um, you know, like with Spirit of the Peaks, we try to make a film that we're like, okay, any native audience is going to enjoy this and any skiing audience is going to enjoy this. Um, and I think the more, I don't know, that skiing opens those doors to that, I, I think that's one of the things that also helps tackle some of the barriers of accessibility for the sport because if you don't know anything about skiing, you're like, eh, I don't probably don't want to be cold and in the snow and just sliding around. That seems weird until you can see like, oh, this is like 
there are very few sports that become a lifestyle in such a way and are going to determine where you live and you know who you're friends with and yeah. I, I think the more that we get to speak to that within our sport uh it, it really opens the doors for people to perceive it as something more than just an activity uh yeah. i don't think there's quite you know there's not quite enough of those films that like even if the film itself did bring the community together to right. see it uh, it's not always brought you know directly as the topic so that's pretty rad i totally agree with that and i mean i think it's pretty safe to say for just sample size of the three of us i mean so many people that i've met around the world places that i've gone it is because of this silly activity where we strap these six foot long pieces of wood to our feet and go slide around and but if you so if you go back to like what doors has those sticks opened it's crazy right like and i'm yeah everybody's in the room is nodding vigorously and i love that so much um there there's you know god there was some beautiful displays of deep powder skiing the absolute makes you want to be there moment you know that sensation that it is unique in the world but the gateway that is a pair of skis right to open up friendships learning about yourself figuring stuff out where you travel where you live who you're hanging out with it's it's really cool so i i that absolutely resonates and you know i think especially if we go back some years go back 10 or 20 years it really was about the ski porn it really was like let's just see you know absolutely top level performance on these things and that's great and i can still get down with that you know but we're broadening things and i love that well, I love when we can have both. Yeah. Like that to me is the sickest thing when you're like, there's no reason that you can't put the best line of the year in the most meaningful ski film at the same time. Hmm. And I think that's that's a huge thing. And I think one of the biggest things that that brings to you is like this, this understanding of collective relationship to place that like you don't get that many other places where the, the hmm. thing that you do actually also bonds you to the ecology that's surrounding you and makes you alive. And uh, yeah, I think like skiing getting to be a celebration of that in films is is something that like the more, and it stinks why it's coming up at that level, I think, but the more that climate change becomes a factor in how we perceive our sport, the more we also get to like bond around some, some ecological values of community that I, I don't know if any other sport, maybe surfing, like quite opens you up to in that way. And mm. uh, as an indigenous person, I find that really refreshing to have that access point, to be able to talk with communities that are mostly white and then be like, but isn't it amazing how snow makes us feel this way? And then it like literally makes us alive and everything we're going to see for the rest of the year is alive because of the snow that we skied on. Mm. And so maybe skiing is just a celebration of that, you know, of mm. not only ourselves being alive, but of, being a part of an ecosystem that is living with us. Hmm. And I think the more that we get to talk about that, that that can create a sort of social and environmental pro uh, progress that we, we haven't really gotten to gotten to see before in, in this kind of culture. Yeah. And I think that the beautiful thing of using skiing as the vehicle for 
these conversations and the proof that skiing isn't just frivolous in that mm-hmm. we're sliding yeah. around on pieces of wood, plastic, and yeah. carbon fiber is exactly what you just spoke to, Connor. Yeah. We are able to use that to connect with ourselves, to connect with our environment, to connect with other people. And that common thread that our community of skiing has opens these doors for all of us to connect on a deeper level and then take that one step further. And, you know, that's what we're both all about is using that common thread to then have meaningful conversations and to create change in our community and in our culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think Connor has kind of spoken to this maybe better than anyone I'm familiar with in modern skiing. Cause you know, I just said the part about, yeah, like the silly thing we do and we're kind of moving around and, and Connor has flipped this in a way that, I mean, you and Cody talk about this in your part of tracing influence, but no, let's maybe not look at it as frivolous. It's just the little vehicle that puts us in a position to appreciate and better understand more fully like oh right this has to be here yeah yeah and i think i think like i don't know i had this experience when i was in the quarantine phase of uh covid the first one and we went skiing uh we well we stayed up in my friend's cabin up above silverton that's where we decided we were going to quarantine um and we had to ski every day to do everything right to to go gather firewood we had to put our skis on we were running a chainsaw on skis right but that doesn't stop us then from later in the day going and skiing a big line and some sick pillows right and i think it really points to like what is the origin of skiing we didn't Mm -hmm. we didn't make skis as human beings for the first time to recreate right right when we look at like the very first skiers that we can find archaeological and uh, oral tradition record of are in you know northern china mongolia kind of areas and that technology that they have predates the wheel the ski predates the wheel right and it had skins on it that came from horse skins that term skins also used the indigenous people of the aleutian islands in alaska used seal skins right on skis to get around and so the more that we look at it and the more that we you know really like look at you know what's important to us in life um i don't think it's ridiculous to put something at the top of the list when it's been a part of Mm. human connection to landscape for so long and um yeah i think that's just like a really special gift that we get to use them the way that we do now but to look at them as like only this short window of recreational Mm. evolution to where we are now like I, i think it's not doing justice to to what skis really do like they they fed communities quite literally like you use that to hunt mm-hmm. you know for tens of thousands of years and now maybe they feed communities in a different way and in you know on a different you know soul level maybe instead of the stomach level but you know, i don't think you could say that they're anything less than necessary in our snowy and mountain communities yeah and you know actually to pull this back to the film tour is The reason that um, I created this film tour together with Solomon starting last year and now we're in year two is that exact connection. Like last year we had a show in Boston and the East Coast shows are amazing. People are so passionate and fired up. And at the show in Boston, I realized and I shared with the crowd, like when I drove into Boston, 
I was driving past thousands of people on the sidewalk. And who knows if any of those thousands of people that I passed were skiers, but in a massive city like that, we were able to get pull together 250 people who have that common thread of skiing that's created direction and meaning in their life. And we got all together in one room and that community gathering is magic. It's like feeds the soul. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's the, that's the beauty of, I guess, skiing in the modern day. Mm -hmm. And then of course, there's the fact that if we bring it back to literal feeding and eating, I mean, anybody who lives in a mountain town where there's a ski area, well, then we actually are back to the brass tacks of like, maybe we're not on those skis out to hunt food, but it's still an ecosystem that skiing is like a major part of. And obviously we have to figure out housing issues and all kinds of related things. But in that sense, actually skiing still is the number one economic driver to a number of communities out there. So, yeah, I'd love to see like a graph on the correlation between like, uh, you know, landlords who in the number of days a year that they ski huh. and what they charge for rent because huh. <laughs> i'd imagine that like huh. the more you ski in your community the more likely it is that you use the opportunity to lease or rent housing in order to support that community like so many times you meet someone who's on the mountain every day and they're like oh yeah well you know i do have a lock off or you know we've got this extra room that we rent but we only rent to locals or people who have a new job at the mountain or, you know, different folks who wouldn't have access in the community to housing. And I think like pretty strong correlation with the number of days you ski and, and how you feel with those sort of things. I think if you're a, oh, we go to our vacation house two weeks a year, blah, yeah. blah, blah. That thing's on yeah. Airbnb for a lot. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, so uh, I, I think these these mountains are pretty powerful teachers and like you may not be able to like read the textbook or listen to the podcast on what they have to say uh but you can certainly tune in and the frequency with which you do will definitely have an impact on your life you know like one of my favorite parts of getting connect connect with all of these communities is learning and seeing the inspiration and direction that skiing holds in other people's lives because we're in this kind of strange to some degree position where we're put up on a pedestal as pro skiers and we're the ones in the films and people are coming to watch that film. But like the people that I get to meet at these shows are so passionate about skiing. So I always try to have individual conversations, you know, to learn about these other people and like, you know, like the, the projectionist here in Crested Butte at the center for the arts, his name's Ed. I know him as deadhead Ed <laughs> from his days ripping around Arapahoe basin, my home mountain growing up. And he used to ski in the Enduro every single year. And now here in Crested Butte, he's a, as he said, a celebrity ticket checker. And, you know, like getting to connect with people like that and have deep, meaningful conversations around skiing is like, fires me up just as much as, you know, if they watch a film with one of us in it. Hmm. When did you two first meet? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Was it was it Tinder or Hinge? Or... <laughs> <laughs> what was our first interaction? <laughs> A swipe, <laughs> swipe. He's, he both swiped right. Oh man! I mean, we did meet digitally. 
like yeah multiple different interactions you know certainly like just common friends but then like i feel like the time that we actually got to like legit meet was again digitally uh with zoom lobbying for protect our winners yeah yeah i guess that's the tricky thing of this day and age where it's like you could have like had seven yeah face-to-face conversations with someone and not met them like when I walked in here today and you're like, nice to finally meet you. I was like, oh, yeah, right. We've talked for hours. Yep. <laughs> so we haven't yep. actually talked in person. Um, by, by the way, I love it. I lo- I mean, because otherwise, like, you and I wouldn't have met or oh, talked yeah. or connected till today. And I, I'm grateful for it. I mean, I, I know, like, it's all weird and crazy, but my life has been blessed by modern technology that has allowed me to have rich conversations with people all over the world. And, yeah, um, so... Uh, it, it is a funny spot, a yeah. funny space. It's though. great because I think like with that in mind, like I pretty much knew like Drew and I were we were going to be bros, like <laughs> legit brothers <laughs> the first time I met him because we'd already had so many interactions like that. Um, so I, I don't know if I can remember like the exact specific first time that we hung out. Uh, the first time we met in person was at the Denver show of last year's film tour yeah got that's it that's right that's yeah. right and then you made me cry the first night yeah <laughs> ups and downs jerk um, making you cry right away yeah yeah did that to a lot of people with yeah that film. me too me too yeah <laughs> yeah and then and then we got i think like we got to really solidify our, our bond on the on the mountain collective trip last year and I S- think say was, more yeah or like solomon like team family gathering last year was in revelstoke to like kind of kick off the winter and yeah man like you know the time that we've gotten to spend together like even before that but certainly since then is like you know to to our prior point like you're one of the highest level humans i know and like immediately we were kindred spirits um and yeah i mean it's your it's yours to share if you want but like you know the name that you called me when he, when we like went our separate ways in Revelstoke, like yeah, meant the world. Yeah, yeah, that's. I think that's. Yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those process things where you. I think like, if someone else is using the platform that you use so similarly, hmm. there's just like a kinship, like a kindred feeling, right off the bat, uh, where it's like, oh, like you see the leverage that I see that comes from a pair of skis Mm -hmm. and you want to push on it the same way that I do. And like, for me, um, it's something I talk about less directly in my films, but mental health is such of a motivation of why I want to bring skiing to native American communities is because it played that role in my life at a number of times where I was like, I didn't want to get out of bed for anything. But if I woke up and I looked at that snow stake on open snow, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was good. I was like, man, I'd be up at 5 a.m. at a time in my life when I couldn't drag myself out of bed till you know, past 10. Um, and so I think like, and that vulnerability that you're bringing into the space, for me, that was so scary initially to show up with vulnerability in the skiing space when you're like brand new, you're kind of the outsider, you don't necessarily look like anyone else, your backstory is different than everybody else. And to be like, oh, there's someone else who's just like showing up totally vulnerable and trying to change the world from like a deeply emotional place mm-hmm. with skiing that I was just like, okay, we're 
there's some whatever orchestrates the collective actions of the universe has <laughs> has brought us into the to the same room for a lot of reasons and so yeah um that bond was just it almost existed before we could step into it and then once it did yeah i just felt like we we're we we're kind of brothers in the same in the same fight kind of going into battle together so hmm. i made sure when i when i said bye to drew when we were when we were in revy uh i sent him off in in Lakota and in Lakota we don't have a word for goodbye uh we it just doesn't exist so we say doksha or doksha ake uh which means later or later and again um and you say that to someone to kind of like ensure you know yeah. that like we will yeah. we will be back together again and and call you kola which is like in Lakota uh choose like like a chosen brother if that makes sense mm -hmm. like the people that you would ride into battle with those are your collas like you and i just felt like before i even met drew we were riding into the same battle mm -hmm. and the more time we got to spend together and like it's weird being a 29 year old rookie on a professional <laughs> skiing team but like that's the circumstances i found myself in and so the the people who just like welcomed me and united in that purpose right off the bat because there's probably like 10 year olds in this town who have a bigger bag of tricks than i do and so it's like it's intimidating like showing up sometimes in these spaces and like i can ski pretty dang well when my skis are still on the snow but to just like have those folks who are like bro like we're not here just because of how well we do the sport we're here because of what we can do for others with the sport that just that was Drew and I's bond, like right off the bat. Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> when did you first start talking about running, or when did you realize, like, oh, this is kind of a thing we both like to do? I mean, it's just a part of like who we are. Like, we just have a year-round connection to the mountains, and you know, it's not just skiing for us. It's like getting connected. Yeah. To I that think, environment in the summer too. I think that just power of like moving through the landscape is something that's like, there's a, just a definitive thread that connects people just on like, Hey, there's something magical. If you just go out there and go from one place to another. And I think it's kind of an unspoken part of that mental health conversation at the same time. And yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's odd. The world we live in, we're so connected where it's just like, I just knew Drew was running, Drew knew I was running and the little conversations just came from there. And So that's what I guess I'm curious about. Was it this mountain collective trip at Revy when you're like, oh, hey, so right, you like to run. I do too. No? I mean, no, it, it literally was unspoken. Okay. Yeah. 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 But like, there's, it's kind of funny, like in the ski world, there's like, certainly like most pro skiers are like, nah, like I can't run. I don't trail run. I just mountain bike in the summer. Like that would hurt my knees. Mm -hmm. um, but there's like a little faction mm -hmm. of- And like, I'd say growing. Would yeah, you say growing? Yeah, growing? yeah, Yeah. Of skiers who are trail runners in the summer. And, you know, we take that like kind of like to a, a far end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, man. But it's like- it's so fun when you get to connect with people on like a second level yeah. beyond skiing. And like, for me, I find uh, a lot of passion and direction and community in my life from running. I feel like very welcomed and myself in the running community. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, 
it was funny like as i was getting ready to race just the people who saw that i was racing and naturally stepped in and were like hey let me come crew for you do you need help with this and that were my solomon ski teammates huh. like between drew and emma like uh that was that was my crew for for my 50 and there was no i didn't have to ask them <laughs> like they saw that i was racing and were like dude let me come support you we're teammates and it doesn't like stop whether you know you're in like the solomon boots or the, <laughs> the running shoes like um and i think we just kind of already had that that level of bond and understood like the same way i'd want to join you if i heard you were doing a sick expedition like i want to be there when you run your hundred miler like it's just it's, I don't know. I just want to see my, my friends succeed like that. And especially the ones who I know what they're doing with the energy of their success. Hmm. So let's stir things up a little bit. Who would you say is the harder person to crew for? Is it harder to crew for Drew or harder to crew for Connor? Me, 100%. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I didn't have to answer that. <laughs> Connie is the easiest and like best runner I've ever crewed for. Like when we crewed him on his 50 miler in Leadville, the Silver Rush 50, um, he was, he'd like come into the aid station and he'd be like so jovial and fired up and so nice. Like we were like, I'd like walk with him out of the aid station so he could get like the last drink or the last like, you know, bite of mm -hmm. whatever he had grabbed there and then pass it off to me and continue. And he just like stopped and he's like, yo, like, I'm so appreciative that you guys are here. Like it brought me so much joy to come in here. And I'm like, dude, Connor, fucking leave. Like, <laughs> this is a running race. Go. <laughs> and I guess that's like the same inverse. Like when you crewed me on my, on the Leadville hundred. Yeah. Well, I just, I run alone mostly. So mm. it is, uh -huh. it's so You're refreshing. Like, wow, <laughs> yeah, there's friends there's and people, stuff. <laughs> they have snacks. They're happy to see me. They're telling me I'm doing good. I don't get any of that when I run on my own. And so, yeah, I just found that so encouraging. It was just like a natural response. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I don't want to say that you're hard, you're not hard to crew for <laughs> by any means, but also I think the mileage has an effect there. Like my disposition mm. probably would not have been. Started dropping after. Yeah, yeah. As soon as I saw Drew the last time, I made it like another two miles and then, you know, I puked out everything he'd given me a bite of. So like, I, I probably wouldn't have been as fun to crew for if there were any aid stations after my puking because. There's no way I smelled any good. Um, but, yeah, I, th I think, like, Drew's still an awesome person to crew for. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> it was my first time doing an ultra or having – and I it was just so exciting after you're out there for, like, two hours. And I'm a competitor, so I, was, I was, didn't want to befriend the people I'm racing against. I'm not, like, a wave to you during, a, mm -hmm. during an ultra thing. I'm like, that's a waste of energy. This mm -hmm. is a race. But then they're, they're the closest I had to a team or like a pit crew out there. So I had to bottle kind of all of my good interactions for the day mm -hmm. <laughs> and get them out at those aid stations. I think like that social energy refuel, uh, that, that was a helpful thing for me. I couldn't like, you know, check my in Instagram and see how many likes I'd got in the middle of the race. So <laughs> I needed to know that, you know, someone approved of me somehow. You, you needed to hit a dopamine. <laughs> I needed that little bit. Yeah, just get me through. <laughs> yeah, drink some mate. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess like in my, in my races though, like certainly like Leadville 100, like I am saying hi to all the other runners <laughs> and like trying to lift them up to create that cycle of positive energy. But then I feel like when I get to my crew, so we, like, yeah. I get to put, let my guard down a little bit. We're the inverse of yeah. that way. Yeah. It's like, this sucks. You know, this is far, right? And we're like, you got it, true. <laughs> yeah, man. So like on the, like the back end of the Leadville 100, um, like I had really turned things around um, and was on like a really good track. Like at, I guess, you know, when I saw you at mile, I don't know what that was, like 64 or something. Yeah, 60 something. Um, I was doing great there. Um, but like going into, you know, going past that 100K mark in a 100 miler, like that's when things start getting really hard hmm. for me at least. And so then like the next time that I saw you was like mile 76. And then Connor paced me from mile 76 to like mile 88 or 89. And I mean, that's when you saw me like in my worst. And I was in, I was in like a really messed up amount of pain at that point mm. in time, but I was like trying not to tell people how much pain I was in mm. because like if I voiced that pain, it made it more real and it gave it control over me. So like when I got to that point, like, I was really just like trying to be in a tunnel and, and to keep going. And, you know, like with the puking comment, like at that point, like I, I was dry heaving for like about the last like 30 miles wow. of Leadville, which like dry heaving, like hmm. probably sounds like it sucks more than puking. Like, and it's kind of like annoying, but, um, like it's awesome because you're not losing uh, your nutrition and hydration. Because <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> like in uh, dry heaving is awesome. Quote, right, right. Drew Peterson. <laughs> it, well, in my hundred before that, I puked like two separate times, and like immediately, like when I puke, I'm like, no, there, <laughs> there, there goes my, all the calories this is my and fuel. water. Like, I wish <laughs> I could pick that up off the ground right now. And yeah, so like at that point in time, I was happy to be dry heaving. But the funny part was there, I I told you what was working well was for you to go like 30 feet in front of me, which is like far enough that I can still hear you, but far enough that I can't complain, tell you to slow down or like ask you for help. And like that just creates like, I can't stop. Huh. If you're 30 feet away, I have to keep going to follow you. It was a solid method. I just had to make sure that at no point in the day that I crop dusted him at that you know, <laughs> kind of kind of length of leading him through the day because you know, who knows what it would do to someone, you know, if they right. got depleted. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I it was it was interesting. It was kind of like leading you, leading you through it, like in a physical sense. But as I remember it, like I don't remember. Like, I almost remember us side by side, if that kind of makes sense, mm. or it just like, yeah, there's a closeness, yeah. even being 30 feet apart, like in the depth of that experience that, yeah. Well, you are cool. connected. I mean, it's just, it's an, I had never heard of like somebody being like, please just go up there and don't be here to talk and the rest. But that is a connection. Like, that's what I'm saying. I need in this moment right now. And so you're still like, okay, I'm, you're thinking I, he's probably back there or, or you're turning around from time to time. So it is connected, but in a different way. And 
I guess that's the whole, that's the point of a good crew, right? Do what the person needs in that particular moment in time. Yeah. Which sometimes isn't just like love and a pat on the back. Uh-huh. And like that no, section. I had to like force feed him. Yeah. He made me set a timer and like huh. every 10 minutes I had to like give him a goo and like get yeah. it already. And, and like that, that section was over power line, which is like the mm. last big climb of the Leadville 100. Mm. And I was like, I was trying to power through to make it under 25 hours because that's how you get a big belt buckle. And, you know, what's going to motivate you more than that? a big belt buckle, right? So, like, for that section, I was doing the math in my head. I was like, yo, this is our chance to make the time to guarantee that I can finish under 25 hours. And I think think we climbed power line. I want to say it was 47 minutes, bottom to top. And we passed, like, eight racers on that climb. And like Connor would be in front of me and be like, yo, this is runnable. Hmm. And like, I'm like, okay, Hmm. like start shuffling. Hmm. And um, like that worked, Hmm. you know? And that was like one of the, that was definitely like the best section of that last, you know, the last 50K of the race. Like we were charging. Yeah, it was impressive for sure at at that point in time. Like he just kept passing people and passing people. And I was like, I hope like I'm doing this right. And we're not going to like, I've never paced someone before. And I was like, I don't know if this is the right pace, but this is, we're racing now. So it worked. Yeah. That's awesome. Do you guys have any plans for the next, next races, next crew joints? I mean, now he knows what he's doing. He's like the pro you got to beg and plead. Like, come on, man. Yeah. I mean, we talked a little bit about it yesterday. What do you, what do you think you're going to do next summer? Yeah, I, I'd love to race the 50 again at Leadville. I ended up running it by accident. Um, I was supposed to run their marathon. You ran a 50 by accident? Yeah, no. I was, <laughs> Something that's never happened to me. I was, like, look at that. <laughs> accident. No, this is pretty funny. <laughs> okay. like, it's pretty barely. A- <laughs> I got COVID like six days before I was supposed to run the marathon. And I was working with the race series because we're trying to help promote some, you know, native runners mm. to come get involved in the Leadville race series. And so I had to run one of their races and it wasn't going to be the marathon mm. that I trained for all summer. Um, and I think it was about two and a half, three weeks after this race was the 50. And so I was like, okay, well, I have three weeks to get over COVID and do a couple long runs, I guess, and go run my first ultra. Um, and so I'd love to just like actually be able to train yeah. for an ultra. I kind of put it off as like, oh, that's too far. I don't want to do that. And I liked running marathons because it was just enough of a pace where I felt like I could go hard all day. Um, but I realized I had that in me by doing this 50 miler. And so I'd love to try try that distance again and try probably – i can with the with the same crew of folks because um that just worked for me and it's kind of nice to be crewed by uh folks like like emma patterson is so much better <laughs> of a runner than i am um, yeah that's a real solid crew you got yeah, going right now it's like and i mean drew's got way more ultra experience than me and so there's just something reassuring when people are like telling you you can do this and they've actually like done it yeah. like no disrespect to my mom but like she thinks I could do fucking anything. So like, I don't want her. I want someone <laughs> who like, if it comes down to it, is going to be like, dude, you need to get your shit together. Like yeah. on my crew. So I, I'd love to, to give another shot at that, 
at that 50 distance for sure. And I, I liked that course a lot. And then hopefully, you know, keep working with the Leadville race series folks and see what it takes to get some, get some native runners, especially here from in the state of Colorado, hmm. um, to get out on the course with me. That'd be, that'd be a powerful experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it would be awesome to like run the second race, the same race again. Like you're going to crush it year over year and I'll be there to crew you again. All and, right. Yeah. I'll hopefully I'll watch you run faster and puke one last time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I actually, I really want to run the Leadville 100 again. Um, I don't think I'm going to run it again next summer. We'll see. Um, right now I'm working with my running coach, Anna Mae Flynn, to figure out what I'm going to race next summer. I'm like really not that like motivated by racing. It's more about the experience for me. Um, but like I've learned a lot of lessons and learned so much in Leadville this year that I do want to apply that at Leadville again. Um, but next year I've got my eye on maybe some other races. Um, like I really want to make sure that I get a hard rock qualifier. Um, hard rock is definitely like my dream race. And, you know, I would definitely love to have that same experience of getting to ski all those peaks in the San Juans mm -hmm. around the hard rock course. And yeah. that course like literally goes over Handy's peak, which is a 14 or like all the way over the summit. So that would be like the most, uh, complete experience being able to connect skiing and running on that level. So next year I'm definitely going to, um, run a hard rock qualifier to keep eligibility for that. Cause I just entered the, um, I just entered the lottery, but odds are pretty good. I don't get in, mm -hmm. but you got to keep entering mm -hmm. so that you improve your odds year over year. So yeah, next year I'm finally going to give in. Um, cause I've, I've actually only raced hundred milers, <laughs> which like is like pretty stupid in the running world. <laughs> and like a lot of people have told me that, but like, that's where my motivation is pure. And, you know, I just stuck true to my heart with that, but I'm finally going to give in and, and race some shorter distances to, um, you know, learn some lessons on a, on a scalable version and something that doesn't take like, you know, a year to get back to. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but then race at least 100 miler next year. Huh. Do you guys run during the ski season? This is like the age old question. I feel like I, I'm always like, I want like the start of every year. I'm like, I'm going to keep running once ski season starts and then things get busy or I'm just like, I could go run or, you know, just ski today. And then I tend to opt, but so I don't know what I should be doing, but I'm just going to use this opportunity to ask what you guys actually do. Is it one then the other, or do you try to keep them both going? Yeah, literally not at all for me. Like, I do not. <laughs> literally not at all. Okay, that may, I'm gonna, that's going to make me feel better yeah. about some of my choices this season. I'll be like, well, Connor. I'll be lucky if I run between now and May probably. I mean, I do like little, when I go to the gym, I'm big on like sprints as uh -huh. part of my yeah. ski training. So yep. I think in that way, like you kind of grease the wheel a little bit and keep the groove. I'd like to be better about it. Realistically, I just, I'm too infatuated with skiing. I don't come home from it early enough to have any gas left in the tank for anything besides make dinner answer a few emails and fall asleep but i'd love to work it in this year it would probably help me quite a bit, would it but. i mean I, would it who knows i mean the whole thing about getting a break right and i i don't know um so 
maybe you have to report back to me. <laughs> I would think like an exercise, you know, physiologist or something would probably tell you like you should at least to some degree. I would imagine like, because what I notice is like it's, I can have a great aerobic base and be really strong from skiing. And just the way you use your joints yeah. and muscles is so different. Like yeah. I'll be at a point where I'm like, yeah, I can just ski like 7,000 vert a few times a week and crush the lines while I do it. Cause you know, it's, you start running right after springtime in the Rockies and like, that's our best skiing I think is in April and May. And it's also usually when I start to run and I'll get my ass kicked <laughs> by like a 5k, you know? And so, <laughs> but I, I also think that's part of what makes me want to come back to it. Yeah. And like, that's yeah. part of the reason, like I've never put too much effort in trying to go somewhere else and ski in the Southern hemisphere in the summers. Cause like, there's part of me that loves that feeling of like, ooh, I really want it. Uh, and yeah. I kind of work a little harder for that <laughs> with running than I do for skiing. It's easy to be like flip on flip on a film real quick before ski season and be like face shots. Okay, yeah, I'm in. Like I'm not going to watch like <laughs> the film of someone running 100 and be like, whoa, that guy just shit his pants. I can't <laughs> wait to get out there. Like it's just different. I don't know how you follow up that answer, Drew, but... So, I'm different. <laughs> I get a lot of inspiration from running, from watching running films, including watching somebody shit their pants in a hundred miler. So, um, yeah, I get a lot of inspiration from that, both for running and skiing. Um, At least we know how to fire you up now. Yeah, you can, yeah. You're not ready for the reels I'm about to send you. <laughs> Daily inspo, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> this really took a turn. Oh my god! As, as expected, really. All right, we're talking about running. How, what's your routine? How do you how do you do both during yeah. the winter? Um, so, like, I I think the dynamic between skiing and running is awesome because it helps with longevity to use different muscle groups, have different pursuits. It keeps the motivation high for sure. And ski touring is great for keeping and building that aerobic base. So like definitely lean on ski touring in the winter and like skiing is my top priority in the winter. So like running doesn't come over it, but I still keep running through the winter. Um, you know, mostly to keep that aerobic base building and then, also to keep the adaptation like in my tendons and in my joints mm -hmm. um that's huge you know like when skiers complain like it hurts my knees like well it's because like you don't run mm -hmm. the whole winter and then you go out the first weekend of june and you try to run at seven minute pace and like that's gonna make all your tendons so angry so i try to keep that adaptation through the winter and um, just try to keep enough volume that i'm able to then like build on that coming into spring um and a, a lot of this sounds pretty nerdy but like again it's in part because like my running coach anime flynn helps me a ton with all of it and i definitely like see the value in like having a little bit more regiment to it like it's not like uh super serious and like having to keep that but it's good to have somebody like helping me make smart decisions so that i get like the best bang for my buck um it does mean running a lot more pavement in the winter, mm -hmm. um, which I hate running on pavement. So that's definitely like a little hard sometimes, uh, but it's fun. You know, like now I live in Lake Tahoe in the winter and um, like right out of my, my, right out of my house in Truckee, there's an awesome wreck path to run by the river and that keeps me fired up. Um, 
And I think it like builds like some good resilience too. Um, you know, like in the flat sections of Leadville this summer, I would take myself back to being like, yeah, like you went out on those cold mornings, like where my beard froze with the, with my breath and condensation on there, you know, 20 degrees in the morning running flat Mm -hmm. pavement, like, you know, that builds some of that mental resilience too. And funny story about running last winter is when I was here for the blister summit, um, like after skiing all day, I like bailed out on like the little opera sesh to like go for, you know, just like a little five mile shakeout, like out on Gothic road. And, um, and I'm wearing tights. I've got my hair up and this dude pulls up next to me as I'm like about to start on the sidewalk and gives me a pro call out. And I'm like, yo, how did you even (laughs) recognize me when I'm wearing tights and my hair's up and everything? And that just cracked me up. So (laughs) hopefully I get another pro call out while I'm in my running tights this winter. That's perfect. Well, hey, this has been super fun. Really happy to get to connect with you guys again and, and do this in person with the two of you and learn more about your own background and kind of connection together. Um, it's really great. And so um, I'll be bugging both of you to get you back into this neck of the woods. And, and um, But really, really appreciate what you both are up to. And um, yeah, happy to know you both and get to have conversations like this. So really, um, this has been a real pleasure. Likewise. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Awesome to be on with you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks once again to Connor and Drew for another fantastic conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from the entire Blister team, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please leave us a rating or review if you are enjoying these conversations to just help us keep this whole thing going and growing. And we will talk to you again on all of our other podcasts later this week.